This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of the No Ceilings Podcast. I am once again your host, Tyler Metcalf. Last week, I was joined by Alex, a.k.a. Draft Film School, to talk about some of our favorite first-round prospects. This week, I want to change course from analyzing some of our favorite prospects and instead look at some guys who may be rising on our panic meters instead of our draft boards. I admit that the panic meter in itself is a flawed concept because it is mainly based on lofty expectations created by people like us that have yet to be met. However, sports are a performance business. I know these are mostly just kids we're talking about, so that sounds harsh and heartless, but it's the reality of the situation. Much of the draft process is trying to figure out the probabilities of what will happen, but that is significantly influenced by what we've seen already happen. The focus of this episode isn't to write off these prospects. It's to acknowledge who, if anyone, isn't living up to expectations, why that may be happening, and potential avenues for them to turn it around. If we say a guy ranks high on our panic meter, it doesn't mean we think he's a bum. It means we think he has a lot more to show and want to see it from him. Tyler Rucker said it the best in his recent Let's Not Blow This Out of Proportion article on No Ceilings. The early stages of the NBA draft season can send out a variety of different emotions. On one hand, it's exciting. Basically like being on a beach on a tropical island and jumping into an ocean that is 98% guaranteed to not have the shark from Jaws reappear. Everything seems just perfect. It's not too hot or too cold outside. Life is damn good and draft season can be the exact same way. We suddenly have this mass flurry of hoops to, to evaluate and you basically just jump on the roller coaster and buckle up for a wild ride. But there's also a horrifying world to draft season. This is pretty much the nightmare fuel that drives individuals like Freddy Krueger to have so much power. You know how Jason just keeps coming back from the dead in all those movies? Well, the secret is he's returning to punish those individuals who overreact too quickly to the opening weeks of draft season. Let's get to it. Well, it is well past my bedtime, and we just spent well over an hour, almost two hours on Twitter spaces, recapping the No Ceilings uh, mock draft. So there will be minimal pleasantries and chitter chatter. I am joined tonight by Tyler Rucker, who I'm already annoyed with for some reason, and the host <laughs> of NBA Deep Dive Deep Dives podcast, Nick Agar Johnson. Nick, how's it going? Well, aren't you always annoyed with me? Is that sort of why you didn't put that in the intro? Uh, you, you two just kind of trade off with it. So I, I I spent too much time with you yesterday doing this stuff. So I, I figured I'd pass the blame over to Rucker tonight. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate I, it. I appreciate that too. I mean, it feels great to all of a sudden be rattling some cages when it comes to Metcalf. So, Nick, is this the first time we've done a pod together? I think it is. Oh, yes. This is great. Big, big moment. Nick staying up late night. I, I appreciate it. So, I'm excited to uh, another episode of No Ceilings. And we're, we're just bringing worlds together, making friends. It's, it's a beautiful thing we're doing over here. Um, so, well, I know we don't have a substantial sample size of these guys yet. I feel like we've narrowly escaped the small sample size disclaimer, um, especially since we're starting to see some conference and more marquee matchups with these teams. With that said, I wanted to do a temperature check and see where some of these top prospects coming into the season land on our panic meters right now. This is reactionary. This is reckless. But I need some clarity because... There are some prospects who, let's say, have been underwhelming. Uh, first up, I want to talk about some guys on the team that may be my least favorite watch in all of college basketball, the Memphis Tigers. 
Uh, Rucker, where are you at with Jalen Duran, and where does he land on the panic meter for you? But let's say one is not panicked at all, and a 10 is full on, the ship is sinking, save the women and children, Billy Zane, I have a child level of panic. I'm really, really proud that you just threw the Titanic into this podcast. You know, I, I'm probably going to be a little bit higher than I think a lot of people out there. And I, it's kind of uncharted waters for me because I'm usually the pump the brakes person. But I would say it's around like a six or a seven. And it's just because what I've seen from Duran so far, like we, the three of us have talked about it. We just talked about it on the Twitter spaces. You understand the upside, the potential, the physical tools. You know, he's like Corey you know, from those ceilings talked about seeing him in person. He's like, yeah, he, he impresses you with his physical profile. So I, I'm not doubting that, but I'm trying to still see the rest of the tools, you know, show some flashes. And I understand that he's this defensive anchor with great shot blocking ability, but I need to see a little bit more from the offensive side. And I think that's where I'm kind of struggling right now. Like I understand how young he is, He's got a ton of tools and potential that I think he can, you know, develop moving forward. But I still have some questions when it comes to, you know, the beginning of the year, he was a potential top five selection. I don't know if I could take him top five right now. And maybe it's closer to the top 10, you know, the end of the top 10. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I'll be interested to hear what your guys' thoughts are, though. Yeah, we, we, talked about him on the very first episode of this podcast and we were fascinated by him because of the defensive versatility and rim protection that he was showing but like you um i've similarly cooled on significantly because and the main reason is that offensive kind of intrigue that he started the season with his kind of completely disappeared from me I know he just had one of his more impressive games I haven't gotten to it yet unfortunately but he's shown a little more versatility Nick where are you at with his offensive game compared to where you entered the season with it and do, do you have massive concerns about what he could be as an NBA player or do you think the talent and the potential is still enticing enough to be that top 10 pick. I got to admit, this is a fascinating discussion for me because I think I have fallen on Duran less far than everyone else on the No Ceilings crew. I still had him at five for our most recent big board. And I think his athletic talent makes him someone who I will have a ton of difficulty dropping out of the top half of the lottery. I mean, when you get a seven footer or six eleven, depending on where you look at the listing, but a big man with his ridiculous level of athleticism, I mean, the defensive potential is almost unlimited with him. And, you know, when you're a big man who has that kind of defensive potential, I'm not as worried about the offensive game. Because honestly, if all he does for his first two, three years in the league is just set a couple screens, roll hard to the rim, catch a bunch of alley-oops. I mean, that's all he really needs to do on the offensive end, especially early in his NBA career. And if he gets the kind of chance to develop into the kind of player he can be defensively, I mean, the Dwight Howard comparison, I think, is a bit much, but I definitely see prime DeAndre Jordan vibes with Jalen Duran, and I haven't seen anything so far this season to dissuade me from those. So I'm probably at like a three on the panic meter with Duran, honestly, because the physical tools are there and the disappointment on offense is not great enough at this point for me to drop him out of the top five. That's fascinating to me because in the past you and I have always been more hesitant to put centers that high in our rankings and they really have to show two way special franchise star potential to put them up there like Evan Mobley did. Um, so you're still seeing that from Duran? I'm still seeing the defensive potential. I'm with both of you in that I'm worried about the offense, but the flip side of that is the Memphis offense is not a tire fire. The Memphis offense is if you went to a tire fire, grabbed a flaming tire out of the tire <laughs> fire, went to a bunch of other local garbage dumps and lit all of those tires on fire, and then took a few of those flaming tires and just sort of tossed them by the side of the road. That's the level of offense that we're dealing with with the Memphis Tigers. So you know what? I'm kind of fine with it. I mean, the defensive tools are still there and the offense is 
what it is. It's not going to make anyone look good, especially not someone who isn't someone who can generate his own offense and therefore needs someone to get him the ball, which, spoiler alert, isn't happening in the way that it needs to in Memphis. That was an incredibly vivid description. Uh, <laughs> Rucker, I, do, do you feel that same way, that just having a point guard would solve a lot of Duran's issues on offense, at least? Yeah, I, I mean, you can definitely make that argument, and I understand it. You know, I, we were going to talk about Imani Bates, but it, it's just the it's, – it's tough to watch. Um, they're just kind of chaotic. It looks like a lot of guys are trying to do too much. So you have to kind of weigh that when we're watching Durant as, you know, evaluating him as an NBA draft prospect, because you're saying basically, okay, is the games where he's maybe disappearing, is it a component from being inside a struggling system offensively, or is it just kind of his effort is, you know, intangibles, if you want to put it that way. There's a lot of questions that I think we just still have to sort of figure out. And I think Nick brought up a great point. You know, everyone had this idea that he was going to be this Dwight Howard. I really do agree with Nick about the DeAndre Jordan vibes. That's the the type of trajectory that I think he could have early on while he's still developing because he's so raw. Um, he's almost younger than, you know, he's still supposed to be in high school. So those are big parts of evaluating him. Like teams are going to be like, okay, What's the intel on him? Can we get him in? And he's going to take time, but he's going to work hard and continue to take strides forward in his game. I definitely think there's that potential and upside. I'm just a little bit more nervous right now because, like, Ty, we've talked about this on our first podcast. Is just I'm always cautious with big men that are super athletic and the rest of the tools – haven't really flashed when it comes to taking them in the top five. So if you get to a point in the top 10 and he's still on the board, absolutely. I would still probably take a chance on him. I'm glad you brought up the age and that that's something I typically like to avoid unless it's like a tiebreaker between two guys. And I think the age so frequently gets overblown, but when we look at it in the realm of how is this guy adapting to the speed of play and how is he, what is his processing speed like? That's when I think it really comes into play. And I think that's what we see a lot from Duran because on offense, he looks lost a lot of the time. And I think a lot of that is because of the more complicated and athletic defenses they're facing, the different things he's being asked to do on offense and trying to adjust to that. So Rucker, I'm still closer to you on the panic meter where I'm kind of around a six because I still expected to see at least some sustained flashes of face-up offense and, you know, at least being able to knock down a 10-foot jumper or a little bit more passing. And we really haven't seen any of that. On the flip side, with Imani Bates, his teammate, I know he's not eligible for this year, but it'd feel wrong to not talk about him at all. It's been brutal. Um, I think part of that's not his fault based on the role he's being asked to play as a point guard, despite not being that great of a ball handler and never really showing any passing chops. Nick, where, where are you at with Amani? I am much higher on the panic meter with him. And really the entirety of the reason why I'm much higher on the panic meter than him is because he doesn't have the fallback of potential elite defensive center in his profile. You know, he's, He's 6'9", really skinny. Some places have him as a negative wingspan, right? He's not someone who's going to be a rim protector. And that is a huge part of the reason why I'm not lower on Duran than I am is because I believe so much in his defensive potential. With Imani, I mean, it's been kind of a downhill slide for him over the last three years in terms of the evaluation and sort of where people see him. I'm at like a seven at this point with my concern for the Imani Bates evaluation because, you know, he's someone who, yes, he's being forced into a role that is not a right fit for him at Memphis. But the flip side of that is if he's going to be anything close to the kind of player that people thought he was in high school, he should be taking advantage of having the ball in his hands more often. He should be able to show a lot more in terms of generating offense for himself or others with the ball in his hands. And given that, you know, unlike with Jalen Duren, so much of the evaluation for Imani is on the offensive end, 
the offensive struggles for Memphis worry me a lot more with his evaluation than they do with Durant. So I'm at a seven at this point, And honestly, that feels low even coming out of my mouth. Like I feel like I might get closer to an eight or a nine by the end of the season with him. I think he still has enough to the point where I'm not going to be full blown all the way off the end of the panic meter at any point, but it's been a really concerning start to the season for him. I'm I'm right there with you. And just entering the season, I, I struggled to understand the hype. And I, I believe based on his age, he should be a junior in high school right now. Um, I believe he reclassified and then graduated early. So and that comes into play, but the game is so fast for him. He's always going at a thousand miles an hour and out of control. His shot selection might be the worst in the country right now. I don't think he's even that good of a shooter. Um, he's, you know, he was always pegged as this lengthy scorer, but he has negative me- wingspan measurements. Rucker, where, where are you at with Amani? Is this a case of it actually does, sorry to steal your phrase, but it actually takes time. Be patient. Or is this a kid that matured quicker than everyone else growing up and just kind of beat them to that level? And now the rest of the field is catching up. Yeah, it's it's so weird because I, I want to put a number on it, and obviously I'm worried, but just with all the background, he's sort of being thrown into thrown to the wolves, if you want to put it that way. I mean, it's just a tough spot for a kid that young to all of a sudden be asked to be a starting point guard for a position he doesn't he was never playing often. Now he's got to be a facilitator. He's he just looks like he's trying to do way too much, and he just is stressing and can't really find any groove or confidence and you see that with some of the drives he's throwing erratic passes he's taking crazy shots so I don't know I I, I'm worried but I also think this is the type of guy that you know we've talked before about like the Jaden Ivies who struggle for most of the year then all of a sudden the end of the season start to find a little bit of a groove maybe that offseason going into next year will be incredibly important for his development to get back on the right track, kind of take a breath, regroup, because everything we've seen so far is he's just all over the place. And it looks like a, this is my problem with high school mixtape, you know, hype is you just give these kids these expectations that they have to deliver on. And it's so hard to deliver when you're just hyped as, you know, he was hyped as like the next big prospect since LeBron. And I was like, whoa, hold on a sec. Like, this kid is so young. So, the number um, of times I saw mini KD for Imani yes. was just so unfair yeah. to the poor kid. Just and, and, and it's just not unfair. fair. It's not fair to these kids. And I don't mean to sound like an old man, but it's just, you know, I, I want to see what he can do with a full offseason. I, I really think this is the type of kid that could be the perfect, like, okay, let me slow down, catch my breath. Now I'll get back to work, figure out what I got to work on. But I'm worried, but also I, you just have to realize this is a definition of a project, and he's just been kind of all over the place. I'm glad that you guys brought up the expectations because they have been so absurd for him for such a long time and placed on him at such a young age. Do you think at this point, would he just be better off essentially going to like the G League Ignite next season, who is a more development-based program, and they're kind of a little more hidden than the Memphis Tigers, who get who have gotten a ton of national TV games and get a ton of coverage based on their coaching staff and the recruits they tend to attract? So do you think just going to maybe a more quiet situation that will actually focus on his development and maybe keep him out of the spotlight, help him a little more going forward? I mean, I think him just being in a role that makes a lot more sense would be the most important thing for him. And if that comes with the G League night, then definitely that's the way to go. I mean, you know, we've already beaten this point to death, but just to hammer it in a little bit further, I mean, he has 12 assists against 25 turnovers this year, and he's supposed to be your primary point guard. That's just, that's not a role that makes any sense for him at this point in his development curve. And So therefore, you know, him going to the G League Ignite, I think would be better for him. Him transferring, I think would be better for him. I mean, it's hard for me to think of a situation that would be worse for him than this Memphis situation. And, you know, we touched on Brandon Boston Jr. during the Twitter spaces that we just did. And, 
you know, if Imani ends up being the 50th pick in whatever draft he ends up actually declaring for, then I think that could be a really good opportunity for him to grow and work on the parts of his game that do actually really work. But I don't know. I mean, I think, yes, the G League night would be a better situation, better fit for him because it would emphasize his development more. But I think that pretty much any situation other than the one he's in right now would emphasize his development more and furthermore give him better avenues to attack in the ways that he's good at attacking. Yeah, I, I, I think that was perfectly put. And a good point to pivot into someone who is also kind of projected as or towards the top of this draft class entering the season and has really let a lot of people down based on their evaluations and how they kind of hoped to see him play. And that's Patrick Baldwin Jr. He's currently averaging 15 points a game on 37, 33, 77 shooting splits with about six and a half, three point attempts per game, Uh, seven rebounds, 1.9 assists and about two stocks per game as well. I, I think he may have the prettiest jumper in the country right now. I absolutely love his shooting form and I refuse to believe that he's going to be a 32, 33% three point shooter all season or even into his future. So I, I I'm still really low on the panic meter for him. I've liked a lot of the kind of off ball and complimentary things that he's done this season, Rucker, are you more concerned that he hasn't really shown up big in terms of scoring and putting up stats against the few kind of tough matchups they'll see all season? I'm probably alone on this island, but no, I'm not. Um, You just kind of watch, you know, all respect to his teammates. You kind of watch those teams playing against Tucker. What? They're they're not Not great. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I thought you were trying to say something like I cut out. No, uh, no. And I can edit that out. Um, it, it's just well, been brutal. special. No, I'm just trying to help. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just been brutal to watch. And I think, you know, I talked about this with Nathan on draft deeper. I think you could take any one of these prospects and put them on that team and they were going to struggle. It's just, everyone's focusing on and on him. He's getting the whole kitchen thrown at him defensively. The shot making when you see him rolling and the confidence is flowing is special. And, you know, I've always been this person when you evaluate games, don't get too high on one game, don't get too low on one game. And I understand that he's had two games against really, really tough competition in which he's just struggled. And I just think it's you have to get a bigger sample size because if we overreact now and he all of a sudden goes on this stretch of five games where he just goes crazy. Then we're like, okay, there it is. That's what we were all believing in the beginning of the year. Now, obviously we would have loved to see him going against top competition, put on a show, but we all kind of expected that this could happen. And we all expected that the overreactions could happen. So I understand anyone that has a little bit of a panic meter. I understand if he's going to slip right now on some people's boards, but I just need to see way more. And I know everyone makes fun of me for it takes time, but it's just one of those players that the situation he's in, I understood that he wanted to go play for his dad. That was really cool in my opinion, but his highs are scary good. And I understand he's had some lows, but even watching that game against Florida, you know, he didn't have a great night, but you still saw some flashes of what he could do. And you're like, okay, there's serious talent here. But um, right now, for me, probably my my panic meter is a little low on Patrick Baldwin. And I might be alone. So I'm just saying. No, you're definitely not for me. I, I, I'm still all in. Sorry, Nick. Go, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say I'm at about a five on the yes. panic meter. I'm not very worried, but there are some things that have been concerning to me. I think that he could have done a lot better with his opportunities on the ball that he has so far this season. And I think one of the biggest concerns about his offense is how much of his offense can he generate for himself? And yes, it's a tough environment at Milwaukee in terms of the spacing around him, but I would have liked to see him do a little bit better with the ball in his hands. That being said, the main positives for his evaluation for me have always been his off ball movement, his off ball shooting. And those are the kind of things that, you know, they, 
<laughs> the evaluation hasn't changed all that much for me on that front. The shot still looks good. And he's making three pointers in a variety of different ways, which is always a positive, but the self creation has been lacking. And that's really the only reason that I'm at a five at all. And I think that he could maybe fall out of the top half of the lottery, but I doubt he's going to fall that much farther beyond the eight to 14 range, just because that shooting is so special, especially at his size. But I would have liked to see him do a better job of generating offense for himself early on in the season than we've seen from him. And that's, you know, the primary concern I have for him is just, okay, he doesn't really have that like all NBA kind of superstar offensive creation upside that I'd maybe hoped for, but everything else is still there. So I'm not too worried. So, so how much of that is just based on your initial perception of him entering the season based on what he's kind of done? Cause I guess to word that better. So did, entering the season, did you view him as a potential primary scorer and initiator in the NBA, or did you view him more as an off-ball scorer? I viewed him more as an off-ball scorer, but especially given the school that he was going to, I think it would have helped his stock certainly to be able to do better with the ball in his hands. It wasn't exactly something that I was expecting from him. But, you know, if you're comparing his situation in Milwaukee to, say, the situation he would have been if he'd gone to Duke, right, that I think would have mattered a lot less for the evaluation. And furthermore, he would have had fewer opportunities to do that, which, you know, maybe in terms of development, it would be helpful for him to have the ball in his hands more. But he hasn't really shown that kind of on-ball juice that if I was looking at his absolute ceiling, which we don't believe in here, but, you know, if I was trying to look at his absolute highest, highest point, then that would include him being able to generate more offense for himself. So it wasn't exactly something that I was expecting, but especially given the situation that he's in, that would have been really nice to see and certainly would have helped with the concerns about his relatively poor performances against some of the stronger competition he's going to face this year. One of my biggest concerns, and it's really only been my only, or it's kind of been my only concern with him has been the motor. And I think the Florida game is when it looked the worst. And I, you know, I, I never like saying that guys don't care or don't want to be out there. Um, and I'm not saying that about Baldwin, but there do seem to be extended stretches that he just kind of coasts and doesn't really press the issue. Um, you know, I think a lot of that gets misinterpreted for instead of good decision-making, because I, I do think he's been a really impressive ball mover and passer so far. But Rucker, are you concerned about at all about kind of that waning effort that we've seen from him? I mean, it raises flags in a hurry because, you know, I get Florida, that game was just ugly quick. And I understand if, you know, you're looking up and you're down 30 or something early in the game, if you're, you know, your mentality could kind of switch or switch. But I also think when you have these games where you kind of look checked out against lower level competition, that's going to raise some flags because those are the games that, Hey, if you're supposed to be this top level prospect and you're not just dominating or at least showing us that you're trying to show everyone that you're better than everyone else on the court. I mean, that's, I think, where it could raise some flags. Um, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier with Durant. Like, there's just some games where guys fade in the background and you kind of almost see, feel like they disappear. And that's where, if you're not making an impact without scoring or some other level of the game, I think that's something that catches my attention more that I'm making note of a negative way of, like, I didn't even realize he was on the court for five minutes. You know, I, I always say with guys that I have towards the top of my big boards, I'm always looking for, can you impact the game without making a stat? Can you help your team get better shots? Can you make that extra pass? Can you, you know, if you're having a terrible night shooting, can you lock in on defense and impact the game that way? So it definitely concerns me. And it's something that you're going to want to see moving forward. If he has those tough games, is he going to let it get to his head or is he going to kind of buckle down and, put together a nice stretch of performances and kind of solidify his stock. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good place to switch over to another forward who was almost one of Baldwin's teammates at Duke, AJ Griffin. 
It's been a weird start to the season for Griffin, who's currently averaging just under six points a game, but shooting 47% from three on a little over two attempts per game. His role just seems really awkward at Duke so far. I I want to stay high on him because the, the talent coming out of high school was obvious. At least I, I feel like it was. Nick, how much of this is due to circumstance and where he fits on that Duke roster? How much of it fits into Coach K just wanting to win and not really probably being all too concerned about developing guys in his last year? How much of it is Griffin just coming back and recovering from that early season injury? Or is Griffin just not as good as he was initially projected as? So I'm at about a three on the panic meter with Griffin. And I think part of it is what you mentioned with the injury coming into the year. But more importantly, he hadn't played basketball in 18 months before the start of this season. And, you know, for someone that young on their development curve with the kind of tools that he has, you know, that makes a huge, huge difference. And I think a large part of the reason why his role at Duke is so weird and so confusing and much more minimalized than I think people thought is just, you know, he wasn't even expected to come back from that knee injury as early as he did, much less all the rest of what he's been dealing with in terms of injuries and other issues over the past 18 months. So no, I'm really not that worried about him at all. Metcalf, I'm with you on the high school evaluation. I thought that he showed incredible promise as a high schooler and then basically missed his senior year because of COVID and, you know, other related concerns in the world. So yeah, I'm not all that worried about Griffin at this point. And it'll be difficult, I think, to evaluate him over the course of the rest of the season, because as you mentioned, his role at Duke has been really weird. And, you know, if he continues to shoot as well as he has granted on small volume of attempts in small number of games, but if he does continue to shoot like that, I think it'll be hard for teams to pass on him after like 15 or 20 ish range in the draft. Rucker, I see you nodding your head. I'm assuming that you're kind of in a similar boat, um, at least to some extent. What do you see the rest of his season looking like? What is he going to have a chance to really show off what he's best at? And if so, what what is that? Yeah, I feel like everyone's selling stock right now, and I'm just trying to buy as much as I can. I have this weird, you know, Nick hinted at it. A lot of people don't remember he, he got hurt in the beginning of the year and then sort of came back way quicker than everyone was expecting. And I don't know. I'm just thinking this, I'm not saying I have any Intel about it, but I have a feeling they're just like, okay, we're going to be a contender for the title. Let's just keep easing him back. And then I'm hoping that they're going to get to a point where like, all right, we're unleashing him. Like let him run wild because he's shown flashes against smaller competition where Mm-hmm. The shot looks good. Like Nick said, he's, he's filling it up. He's spacing the floor. I'm just such a believer that, you know, watching him in high school, the the physical profile, the way he plays on both sides of the floor, the flashes are minimal, but when they're, you know, when he's rolling, you can see what all that hype was about. And I'm just still believing. I think this is the classic guy that the slow start that all of a sudden starts to, get some more minutes at the end of the season. I I just can't sell yet. I'm like, Nick, I think I'm like a three or a four worried. And that feels a little high to me just because, you know, I was shocked when I heard like, oh my gosh, he's going to be active for opening night. Like I thought he had at least another couple weeks, maybe a month. And I thought there was a chance they'd hold him out for the whole season, given how injured he's been over the last few years. I, I just, you know, I'm a big believer of bloodlines too. His dad played in the league for a long time. I just think the tools are there that even if he doesn't deliver on the hype, I still think there's going to be some NBA team. That's like, if he's sliding, they're going to be like, no, 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 no. We're going to take a chance on him. We're going to, that's, that's worth the roll of the dice. If you want to put it that way. Zion Williams end up what? No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I love how we both hesitated for a second to let the other guy speak, and then we both immediately yeah. spoke at the same time. That was that was beautiful synergy right there. But if Zaire Williams ended up going ten, and to be clear, I thought that was a good pick by Memphis. You know, if Zaire Williams goes ten, I don't think it makes sense for AJ Griffin to fall past twenty. 
And honestly, I don't think it makes sense for him to fall past 15, but I think that's a lot more likely than him flying past 20. Yeah, I mean, going off of that, you know, Zaire Williams, just a really, really tough college season, ends up going 10th. Um, Ty, your boy, Jaden McDaniels, really, really tough season after getting some top five buzz in the preseason, ends up going at the end of the first round. I I just think with Griffin – if he could continue to have a couple of those games where he's putting up good production, maybe he has a statement game against tough competition where he actually has a great game instead of the lower level type of opponents. So yeah, I I'm not too panicked. I really do believe that NBA teams are still going to be intrigued. Um, I'm a fan. I, I really like his tools. I think that point about easing him back into the season is important, especially when you just look at his minute log where 11 minutes against Kentucky. And I feel like when he checked into that game, everyone was like, wait, is that AJ Griffin? Like I thought he was done for a couple months. And then a couple of the lower level teams, he's getting up into 16, 20 minute range. Gonzaga, six minutes, Ohio state, two minutes, and then South Carolina state, 22 minutes and 19 points. So I, he, he's shown some of those scoring flashes against lesser competition, but, seeing that we're at least we've been exposed to such a limited role in the NBA. What is that ideal role for him? I mean, I think he's got that potential to be almost, you know, just the first one off my head, but kind of that Patrick Williams vibes where you're, you're not asking him to be the scoring threat, but you're just asking him to be a defensive presence who can potentially develop into like a three and D guy if his shot comes around on a more consistent level, because I think he could be a problem defensively. I think he's got the nastiness, the competitiveness, and he's just gritty and the physical profile. I mean, he, he gets after it defensively, but can he become a more consistent offensive threat? Cause he also has some flashes off the dribble where he shows some great f- footwork and, there's definitely raw potential offensively for, I think, him to develop into a more complete two-way wing. So another guy who I don't love this situation right now, or his situation isn't exactly playing into his strengths, is Peyton Watson. And Watson was a guy who I had top five entering the season. I absolutely loved him, loved the length, loved the passing, the defense, And I feel like what we're seeing out of Jabari Smith is what I hoped we were going to get from Peyton Watson with that two-way impact. The shot isn't falling so far for Watson. He's had a really minimal role. Nick, where are you at with Watson? Because out of all the guys we've talked about, I'm in terms of one and done status and draft stock status, he's probably the highest so far on my panic meter. I think I'm a little bit more worried about Imani Bates, but I'm with you. I'm more worried about Watson than anyone else we've talked about so far. I'm probably like, I don't know. I want to cheat and say six and a half, but I'll say six instead because the physical tools are there certainly. But I mean, you could argue that he's been more invisible than AJ Griffin has. I would argue that he's been more invisible than AJ Griffin has. And I had him, not top five, but definitely top 10 coming into the year. And, you know, instead he's just been very, very quiet for a really good UCLA team that I thought could have used him better. You know, I thought that he would have a much larger role on this UCLA team than he's had and they're fourth in the country and he can't crack 15 minutes a game. And he's hit one of his 10 three pointers so far this season. And, you know, I talk about small sample sizes all the time and 10 shots is, small even by small sample size standards. But the flip side of that is he's only gotten to take 47 shots the entire year, and he's hit 14 of them. I mean, it's really concerning with him right now. And I still believe enough in the athletic tools and the defensive potential that I don't think I'm going to drop him too far, but I'm much more worried about him than I am about Griffin, especially since Griffin has at least hit a few three-pointers this year and looked like the shot is coming along. With Watson, there haven't been any of those kinds of positive, encouraging signs. So I'm starting to get really worried about him. 
So you mentioned that defensive potential, and I, I want you to expand on that a little bit because I think that that is his strength right now, and I think that's his best way to actually earn minutes. Can he be a good enough defender right now for this UCLA team that has title ambitions to actually get more than, like you said, 15 minutes a night? I mean, I think the potential is there, but you know that's really all we're talking about here, right? And you mentioned, you know, with Duke, maybe they're not playing AJ Griffin as much because they have title aspirations and they want to not spend as much time developing players. And, you know, sure, you could use that excuse for Peyton Watson as well, but Peyton Watson hasn't had that 19 points in 22 minutes performance that AJ Griffin has. He hasn't had anything coming close to that. So, you know, yes, he could do better with more of an opportunity. I think he has real potential as a weak side shot blocker, but... I mean, he hasn't even earned minimal playing time and he hasn't had even that one performance. It's like, oh, okay, there are still flashes here. This is intriguing. You know, it's more just we expected so much more for him than he's shown so far this year. Well, I I, I hate to play the gotcha game, but against Belmont, 19 points, 20 minutes, Nick. I mean, come on, man. Um, But... To your point, he's failed to score a single point in five games. He the other two games, it's been three, six, and seven. It, it's it's been bad. That and the shot has looked erratic all over the place. He doesn't look like he has any confidence on offense. R- Rucker, is that the coaching? Is that him just trying to adjust to the college game? What what's going on with his offensive game? Yeah, I mean, I got a chance to look at him up close when me and Albert went to Vegas to go see like the much hyped, you know, UCLA Gonzaga games. And I got to see Watson have a great game against Belmont. And, you know, just watching him before the game, I I was shocked at how lengthy he is. It's not just his wingspan, but he's just he's tall. I mean, he's a big, big boy, but he's skinny. And when you watch him in warmups, like Ty, you hinted at it, the shot's erratic. And it's even in warmups, you can just tell it's something he's constantly thinking about. The footwork is all over the place. You know, sometimes he's got his feet really out wide. Sometimes they're super narrow. I saw him take a couple threes where one of his foot's like directly behind his other foot. It's just all over the place. And you can also see that he's thinking about it after every shot. Like, some of his rotations are spinning like a globe. Some of them are beautiful shots. So, and you could hear the coaches kind of shouting at him and they're yelling feet, you know, because he's obviously trying to work at it and they're trying to cement him to become a better shooter. But you can also see that there's still the tendency that he wants to go back to his old habits. And he's just so fascinating to me because I'm like what you guys are saying. I thought there was definitely a role for him on this team, especially with the defensive upside, because as scared as I was seeing him in person on the offensive side, when you saw him go to work defensively, he's he's got really special tools to be a really special defensive asset at the next level. But I just don't know if it's ever going to come around this year. And I, I know it's a bit of a hot take, but I think another year might be what he needs. And We'll see, because like you guys are saying, UCLA's got title aspirations. They have two veteran pieces in Hami Haquez and Johnny Juzang that they're hoping carry them to the promised land. So if Peyton Watson's a liability offensively, they might not just, they might say, hey, we can't play him right now. But hopefully he earns some more consistent minutes because uh, it's just not trending in the right direction right now. So Metcalf, genuinely and truly, thank you for calling me out for being wrong because I don't want to spread false information. But that one good game that Peyton Watson had, that is nine of his 14 field goal makes so far this season. And he took 12 shots. And I feel like a lot of them were dunks or layups. And that that was the game in which he hit the one (laughs) three-pointer that he's taken so far this season. I got to see it. The one (laughs) three-pointer. A single (laughs) three-pointer. So he five for 35 from the field and zero of eight from three outside of that one game. So, yes, you're right. He had shown flashes in that one game. And, no, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Thank you for pointing that out. I don't want to be spreading lies here, but 
nine of his 14 shots all season came in that game. That's really not a good look. And and the way we've been talking compared to Griffin, where those two games where Griffin had those huge scoring outbursts in limited minutes, that felt like more of a trend in the right direction. Whereas, like you said, Nick, that game for Watson felt like the outlier. And that was like, oh, well, this was fun. Well, it'll be a couple months till we see anything like this again. Rucker, you, you kind of hinted at it during the Twitter spaces, but the the trajectory that Watson is on with his current development and the way that his draft stock is kind of plummeting, do you think that he would be better off returning for a second year and probably taking on a bigger role with this UCLA team or even transferring somewhere else once Juzang and Hakez are gone? Yeah, I I do. I, I know that seems a little like the anti of what I believe where I'm talking about being patient with guys, but you can just see that it's, he's so far away and it's just the offensive side and not just that also, but like his frame is thin too. Like he's got real, I went to go see Gonzaga UCLA, like I talked about, and I was thinking Chet Holmgren was going to scare me with how skinny he was. And, you know, Watson's arms are just twigs like super skinny. He needs just to fill out. He just needs to, he's going to probably need another year because I don't know if you, if he trends this way where he's struggling to get minutes, I don't know where you draft him and teams could go off what they've seen in the high school. I mean, that's a, a lot of their evaluation. They see how special of a potential talent he, he can be, but if you're all of a sudden struggling to get minutes at the college level, when, you know, he's got a great team, they've got two veterans that are probably carrying the load offensively. So he's trying to adjust to not having the ball in his hands all the time. I, I just don't know where you draft him right now. If, if this is what's going to happen. So we're seeing guys like Benedict Matherin, Jaden Ivy went back for a year. Now they're just skyrocketing. I think if Peyton Watson kind of swallows some pride, if you want to put it that way, and says, okay, I need another year, and works his butt off, I absolutely can see that everything comes together and he starts to make that climb like we thought this year. And it's not a bad thing to return. I think you're getting more confidence, you're developing, and it's better for some guys than all of a sudden getting drafted the second round and you're clawing in the G League to potentially make a team. And uh, Nick, a name that you brought up earlier was Zaire Williams, who I feel like had that similar, very skinny, lanky build, had a really rough freshman season, but we saw more stretches from him that still warranted him to be that kind of lottery pick. At this point, if Watson continues basically on, on the same trend and we don't see a significant spike or decline in what he's doing, where would you feel comfortable taking him or or would you just recommend that he returns like Rucker did? That's tough. I mean, I did this last year with Cam Thomas, but some guys just, even though they're the kind of prospects that really frustrate me in terms of the evaluation, and I feel like I should be lower on them than I am. I mean, if you get to pick 25 and Peyton Watson is still on the board and you're a top tier playoff team, which is usually the kind of playoff teams that are picking at 25, you know, Tyler Beckhaff, you and I have talked about this frequently that I tend to have the philosophy that really good three, four-year college players don't get picked in the 20s as often as they should. That being said, if I'm on the board at 25 and I have Peyton Watson available to me, I mean, there are very few teams where I don't say, you know what? he's a project and he clearly showed that he's a project during the season at UCLA, but the talent is there to the point where I don't want to pass on him at the very back end of the first round. That being said, I mean, I don't know what the path is for him to get more minutes this season. And if he doesn't get more than 15 minutes a game this season, I don't see why he would declare if he can come back next year and Hakez and Johnny Juzang are gone. Like his stock isn't going to fall that much further. Right. And if he can put together the kind of sophomore season that we saw from him in high school, 
then he's probably a lottery pick. And then it's definitely the right decision for him to go back to school. And, you know, also with name image licensing rights, I think it just makes a lot more sense for a lot more college players to consider going back than when they were, you know, not being paid above the table by anybody, right? I think it's just a decision that generally speaking makes a lot more sense now than it did two years ago. And I think Watson is one of the prime candidates for coming back because again, if he doesn't get more than 15 minutes a game this season, even if he does have a couple of impressive games, a couple more 19 points in 20 minutes kind of games, that's it. We're only going to see very rare flashes. And for the most part, he's just not going to get the playing time that he needs to prove that he's more than he's shown so far this year. And someone who decided to completely skip school altogether and go to the G League Ignite, uh, Jaden Hardy, who... Oh, boy. I was, I, time for Rucker I was, and I to go to war. <laughs> it's time. Let's do this, boys. I, I was really high on him coming out. I love the scoring, but Nick, you and I have always gone back and forth about these scoring guards. I was really worried about Hardy's lack of athleticism and ability to kind of beat guys off the dribble. Love the shooting. I'm kind of at like a five right now with him. Um but like you said, Nick, I, you guys have very differing views on this. So Nick, as as the pessimist, as the hater of elite, of super talented scoring guards, <laughs> why why don't you kick it off? I love how like the first comment I made on the Twitter Spaces <laughs> was how I like to try and be optimistic. How one of the things I love the most about prospect evaluation is getting excited about players and what they can do and who they can be, and that's how you introduced me. So you know what? Thank you for that. I, I really wrong. I really appreciate. Prove you're wrong. Okay. Jaden <laughs> Hardy is someone who I still have as a lottery pick, and I don't think there's a good chance that I will be dropping him out of the lottery. I think that he has shown the kind of shot creation upside that superstar players have, and I am very concerned about his athleticism. I am even more concerned about his athleticism than I was coming into the year. And ultimately, if he is a volume scorer that is not particularly efficient at it, and he's not a particularly good athlete, and he's not an exceptional playmaker for others, and he's not exactly a heavy rebounding presence, which, you know, you can debate how much that matters for guard evaluations anyway. I mean, if he's just an inefficient volume scorer, you can find those kind of players at a value that is well outside of the lottery. I mean, we brought this up on the Twitter spaces. Cam Thomas ended up at 27th. And as I said already, I had him at 30 because I couldn't drop him out of the first round. But what does Jaden Hardy do that is so different from Cam Thomas that Hardy is considered a probable top five, top 10 pick coming into the year. And, you know, still I'm the lowest on him and I still have him in the lottery does he do enough outside of scoring at middling efficiency to be the kind of player you want to take in the lottery? And for me at this point, the answer is no. So, you know, again, I haven't dropped him out of the lottery yet. I think the odds are good that I won't just because that shot creation upside is so high. But I mean, panic meter wise, I'm at like a seven for him. I am more worried about him than I am about anyone we've talked about tonight other than Imani Bates. Rucker, go. Just holding in my thoughts, trying to <laughs> kind of calm the blood pressure down a little bit. No, I, I understand everyone's doubts about someone like Hardy because a guy that was potentially flirted in discussions in the preseason as like, could could he give uh, you know Chet and Paulo a run for number one? Like that was kind of the idea thrown around. And that's also what I can't stand about the over – overhyped preseason with a high schooler going into all of a sudden a professional rank. And, you know, I, I just, I'm not too worried yet. And I understand everyone's hesitancy. Like I, I think Nick's spot on. If you're worried about Hardy, that is exactly why, because he was a high school lethal shooter that is struggling with the shot right now, but the G league for a kid like that to all of a sudden be thrown into the G league, it's just such a massive leap. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is with, with the ignite, they're focusing on just developing guys. Like they're going to put him 
in positions where he's not going to be comfortable because they need to develop that aspect of his game. So I think he's going to be probably this more off-ball scorer when it's said and done, when he gets drafted. But right now they're they're putting him in a lot of, you know, pick-and-roll plays. They're, they're just throwing the ball at him and trying to make him figure it out. And I still believe the shot's going to come around. Um, on the, the percentages will level out eventually. It's just he's he's making strides in areas that are more important to me than just the scoring because he's also showing now some feel some ability to attack the lane with change of gears because like Nick said perfectly he's not a you know Scoot Henderson type of athlete so he's got to figure out a way to use hesitations and trick the defense like he's learning the other aspects of the game except like being a great shooter. He's got to learn how to play the game of basketball and other levels because he can't be a top 10 pick if he's just a great shooter. Like he needs to have other aspects of his games that can stand out the next level. So I get everyone's hesitance when it comes to Hardy right now and his slow start, but I still want to be patient and just kind of see a bigger sample size. Like if he's doing, if he's struggling with his percentages in a couple months from now, then I'm going to be heating up, like Nick said, and be definitely concerned. So the, the the name that always comes up with Hardy, it seems like, is Cam Thomas. And during the Twitter spaces, we kind of bandied about that name as well. Nick, what fascinates me so much is that I believe last year you were tempted to even bump Cam Thomas out of the first round. And now with Hardy... You're you're saying that he's he's probably a lottery lock or that mid that mid first round lock for you at at worst. So between those two, what separates them so much that you view Hardy in such a brighter light? I think Hardy has better feel. I think he's much less selfish, even though he's someone who shoots the ball a lot. I don't think it's anywhere near the level that Cam Thomas was. He tries on defense, which is something that Cam Thomas has not done until this season with the Brooklyn Nets. And even then, it's still questionable whether he's going to try more frequently than that. I mean, you know, this is it's funny that you bring up Cam Thomas because Cam Thomas is one side of this. But the flip side is Trey Mann, who I had at 12th last year. You had even higher. And I think Jaden Hardy is a lot closer to Trey Mann than Cam Thomas, where with Jaden Hardy, I think his ability to create his own shot and you know, not only to create his own shot, but be willing to look for his teammates is way, way above where Kim Thomas was at this point. And, you know, there is a similarity for me with Cam Thomas and Jaden Hardy, but really the similarity for me on that front is I recognize that these are the kinds of players that I tend to undervalue, that I tend to get more frustrated with than I should. And therefore, I try and put a limit on like, okay, I know that Cam Thomas frustrates me in every aspect of the game except when he shoots the basketball, but he's good enough at that that I can't bring myself to drop him out of the first round. And with Jaden Hardy, it's a very similar thing. I think his shot creation and his shooting ability is really top tier. And because of that, it will be very difficult for me to convince myself to drop him out of the lottery because, again... Those are the kinds of players that I tend to undervalue. And, you know, if I was thinking, okay, you know, correction blinders off, right? Like where would I put him if I didn't know that this was an area where I tend to undervalue prospects? I still think I would have him at, you know, somewhere in the 15 to 20 range because I just believe in his ability to create shots and create efficient shots for himself and others. I believe he's way above where Cam Thomas was in my evaluation of him. But you're right to point out that it's a similar kind of thing for me where I tend to get more frustrated with these kinds of players than I think is fair to them and fair to their evaluations. And therefore, you know, with Jaden Hardy, he has the skill set that makes me think, okay, he does really have that superstar scorer level upside. And therefore, even when he does disappoint me and even where there are points that I'm worried about his game outside of that scoring I have a lot of belief in his ability to get to a point where he is a tough shot maker. And that skill is maybe the most difficult in the NBA to find someone who can score a high volume of points on relatively middling slash good efficiency. 
And Hardy's been inefficient so far, but I don't think he's anywhere near the level of chucker that Cam Thomas was and is and probably will forever be. So I, I want to wrap up the Hardy thoughts, Rucker, with this. What would he have to do for the rest of the season to re-enter that top three or four kind of conversation for you? Because I, I know he was up up there for you entering the year. Or is there anything he can do? Or is that ship kind of sailed and you just kind of want to see continued improvement? I think there's a lot he can do. And, and I don't, I think the shot's going to come around that that'll definitely make scouts and even evaluators like us. If he goes on a stretch of games where he's all of a sudden shooting 50% from the field and scoring at multiple levels and showing a renewed confidence where it's like, okay, the game's slowing down. I definitely think he could heat up. I just keep wanting to see his decision-making improve. And it's not just like, getting high number of assists. I just want to see the reads. Like, is he understanding where the ball is supposed to go? Is he making that extra pass? Because like I'm saying, like you guys understand, we saw his high school tape. He was a lethal shooter, a tough shot creator. Now he needs to develop the rest of his game to be a more complete, like combo guard. Like, can you get the ball on the wing and attack and make plays for your team? Can you have a playmaking upside that, is developing with the G League Ignite that is all of a sudden going to be able to stand out at the NBA level. I just think that there's plenty of upside, plenty of time for him to kind of regain some momentum. I think Nick's spot on. If if he's fallen, that's fine. But I think the talent and the upside still, I don't know if you can drop him out of the lottery because there's just so much upside with a swing with a player like that that maybe – he goes off the ball at the NBA level and he's way more effective because he's not having to make all of this decision-making. Maybe that's what they're training him to do right now. We don't know, but I do think that there's going to be a stretch of games this year in which he's going to start taking some, some strides forward because it's a long season. Um, The G league season last year was condensed with the bubble and COVID and everything. Now it's going to be a little bit more stretched out. So I just want to see if, the, the process keeps happening. You know, if he progresses that second half of the G League season and starts, you know, showing some more serious signs. Love it. Um, so as we end every episode, Nick, what's the best thing you saw in basketball recently? It can be the NBA, college, prospect, single game, a streak, whatever. What's the best thing you saw in basketball recently? Did either of you see the ending to the New Orleans Oklahoma City Thunder oh game? Oh my gosh, yes. yes. I did right before we came on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing's going to top that. Absolutely nothing is going to top that. Well, the oh OKC shot to tie it was like pure anarchy. And then I didn't, who shot it on New Orleans? Because that was just the Hail Mary of throws. That was I didn't even just, see who it was. I, I just uh, saw the absolute Devontae pandemonium Graham. as soon as it happened. Oh, it was, I think it was Devontae Graham. He literally shot oh, like an 80 footer. <laughs> Yeah, just well, I, absolutely I, ridiculous in the best possible way. Yeah, I, I don't think that can be topped. So, Rucker, I, I don't even care what you have to say. Um, Do you ever? Oh, really? I, I think, well, I got one. I got, I got one. How about this? Try, try and beat it. Try just, beat because, it. just because I'm really furious, uh, the best thing I've seen all week is Jaden Hardy right now has 23 on 8 of 16 shooting. Thank you very much. That's how we do it. There we go. That's, that's called timing, folks. Uh, Nick, tell the people where they can find you, plug away, tell them what to keep an eye out for. Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, and you can find my work on No Ceilings. I will have an article coming out tomorrow, so probably the day of by the time most of y'all watch slash listen to this, about Jaime Jaquez Jr., who was someone we touched on in the Twitter space, and Someone who's very different from Jaden Hardy, almost the exact opposite of Jaden Hardy is an evaluation, which, you know, for me means I'm going to rate him maybe a lot higher than most people would, but he just has such a diverse skill set, and he's a really smart basketball player, and he's someone who, even though he's an older prospect at this point, I think that teams towards the end of the first round would be really wise to take a good long look at Jaime Jaquez, which... 
I have been doing today and will continue to until the article is done. So please check that out if you get a chance by the time you listen to this. Rucker, do you have anything coming up? Where can the people find you? Um, I'm at Backcourt V, Backcourt Violation on social media, but I'm I'm living at No Ceilings, uh, No Ceilings MBA on social media, and you know subscribe to our Substack. It's absolutely free. No Ceilings.substack.com. Um, I'm pumped to see Nick's piece. Everyone on our team's been doing fantastic stuff. So I'm I, I'm I'm circling the waters about what my piece is going to be this week. So it's just going to have to be a surprise for everyone listening right now, but. At this point, it kind of has to be that Jane Hardy game, right? No, 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 no. I have a that that article is brewing. It is going to be a monster. <laughs> I, I'm not ready to release that beast yet. So I'm probably going to say some very bold things that people are going to remember for a long time. So uh, no, we'll see what I'm doing. I might be going uh, a little international dive this week, or I have a couple other tricks up my sleeves that I'm thinking about. So thank you guys for having me on. I love talking hoops with you guys. Well, the, the feeling is mutual, despite all the, the manufactured hostility. Um, <laughs> w- once again, I am your host, Tyler Metcalf. You can follow me on Twitter at tmetcalf11. And please make sure to subscribe to the No Ceilings Substack at noceilings.substack.com, uh, where you can find our composite big board and mock draft that just went up in the, the uh, last week. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at No Ceilings NBA. Uh, the Substack is completely free and gets delivered directly to your inbox, so you have zero excuses not to subscribe. Please also make sure to check us out on YouTube at No Ceilings TV, where we started putting out some really great breakdowns. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and a five star rating. Until next time, see you.